The Case of the Gilded Plum. Detective Brontosaurus v. Rockefeller, Erotic Mystery, by Brent Constantine. Chapter 2. Brontosaurus waited in his office, purposely twirling his fidget spinner as he thought hard about the case. He had an entire case of fidget spinners that he needed to get rid of after buying them online from a wholesaler earlier that year. Getting up in age, Bront had wanted to invest his earnings in something other than empty whiskey bottles and half-full shipping bottles, and purchased the fidget spinners, believing them to be a type of tiny personal fans used by workers engaged in tight sewer pipes that needed to save space, but also be able to cool down small parts of their body in a hurry. Learning that they were actually 2017 novelty items popular with parents trying to cope with their children's autism as cheaply as possible, had enraged the whiskey-drunk detective, who apartment was soon strewn with pieces of glass and tiny frigates. Despite autism being just as prevalent as ever several years later, he had been unable to unload the merchandise at children's hospitals, care clinics, or even juvenile detention centers, typically stopped by reception staff who he believed probably then took his idea and made a tidy profit. Jimmy! Rockefeller yelled for his assistant, who weakly slunk into the room, holding a pile of mail, probably a collection of income tax forms or whatever nerd shit he was trying to get Brunt to look at. How many of these fidget spinners have you sold today, Jimmy? Jimmy didn't immediately respond, and Brunt believed he was well within his rights to react to this disrespect and insubordination by hurling the fidget spinner in his hand as hard as he could at Jimmy's chest. Unfortunately, years of big whiskey drinking and tiny boat building had impaired Bront's muscle coordination and the three-pronged mass fell harmlessly to the shag carpeting. Hit yourself with that fidget spinner at some point today, Jimmy. Sir, Jimmy squeaked. I thought you might want to go over the new case with me to see if I was able to offer any assistance at this point. New case? <laughs> Brunt chuckled, rolling his eyes around and around in disdain for Jimmy's inane chirping. Jimmy, when you get to be a pro-erotic detective such as myself, you find out fairly quickly that there are no new cases. It's just the same old cases. Only the names are different, and the faces and the specific details of the cases. But other than that, they're all the same. Uh, yes, of course, sir. Jimmy's eyes both pointed to the floor. All right, Jim Jam, Brown said, his hefty frame rising from behind the mostly wooden desk. I want you to pull the car around and don't mess with the seats or rear view mirror this time. Ah, uh, but Mr. Rockefeller... That's Mr. Rockefeller to you. Oh, you did say that. Well, still get out of here and bring around the car. Jimmy disappeared down the spiral staircase that had been installed in the building before Braun had begun renting it. It made a big impression on clients, who seemed to love spiraling both in their lives and on staircases. It also let the detective get a good look at the top of their heads as they walked upwards to his office. He kept a small pile of bricks next to the stairs in the event that he was able to determine someone's ill intentions toward him based only on the upper portion of their skull and some shoulder. Most detectives wouldn't be able to to accurately differentiate between an average Joe and an evil Jack with so little information, let alone be able to make the decision on whether or not to bludgeon them to death with a falling brick. But Brontosaurus v. Rockefeller wasn't just any detective. That's right, Bront said to his inner monologue before continuing non-verbally. 
The secret was if the stranger was bald or not. Sure, today's PC culture might like you to believe that bald men were all angels, but experience and the cold hard facts described in several YouTube videos had convinced Brontosaurus that they were untrustworthy at best and inhuman smooth dome devils at worst. Although he had never been forced to use one of his detective's bricks, he had come close, one winter almost mistaking a woman's pink knit cap for the fleshy skull of a bald beast. Rott enveloped his thick detective's body with his thick detective's trench coat. It had served him well over the years. Not this particular coat, which, due to the nature of his profession and its tendency to frequently destroy trench coats, was only a few weeks old. He patted down his pockets. Wallet. Keys. Bus pass. Pipe. Detective's pipe. Magnifying glass. Other magnifying glass. Finally, he reached his main detective's gun, the M10 Slugger 500. It was a discontinued, black-market, British military weapon, custom-made by an old friend with a top-shelf 3D printer in the jungles of Spain. The metal on the gun was a gunmetal black, punctuated by a beautiful teak handle and sandalwood trigger. He painted the barrel bright pink so that criminals and criminal suspects thought that it was only a mere toy. Brunt loved the look on their faces when they learned it wasn't. Usually, that was right before he wiped that look off their faces for good. He shot off their faces with the gun. He kissed the barrel on both sides and then slid the 16-incher back into its concealed holster across his belly. He wondered where Jimmy was, and then remembered that he had been parking several city blocks away in a residential area, since the city had put meters outside his building. There's no way he was going to pay $3 a day at his own office. But it gave him time to think. Think about the case. Betty Bonko. The dame was honking up the wrong tree, and he could tell. There was more than she was letting on about her sister, about her family, and about the case. He really should have asked her more questions before letting her leave the office. No time for regrets, Bront smirked. I've had less to go on in the past, and I've cracked every case. He was right. He had solved cases in the past with just a pack of matches. The mystery of the missing matches. That had been one for the books. The matchbooks. Somebody light a match in here, he had said at the end of the case. He had said it because it stunk in the giant match warehouse, and it stunk now. Not like matches or matchmaking equipment, but something altogether more devious. It stinks like a rat, Bront exclaimed, thinking not about the small scuttling mammals, but of the devious scuttling people, many of them bald. It didn't add up, he thought, taking a big swig from a nearby bottle and realizing his mistake in time to avoid swallowing a mast. Why did Betty Bonko come to his detective agency? Her family could afford the world's best detection money could buy. And sure, his prices were on the high side according to many of the reviews he had gotten on Google, but he got the job done, didn't he? That match factory had been returned safe and sound to the board of trustees, hadn't it? Game, set, match. Maybe Betty was in on it, he thought, absently checking the fly on his pants to make sure it wasn't open before he left the office. Sure, it might seem unlikely, but he'd seen it before, and so had everyone else when he'd come out of the bathroom at Starbucks in a hurry. Something tells me there's more here than meets the eye, Bront said, smiling at his own crotch. He then winked mischievously. She was a woman and she needed his help, which was good enough for him. Also, she was paying, which was good enough for him. He lit a cigarette and began smoking it. 
his signature combo. The sky had turned a bright shade of pink, then green. The electronic billboard outside his window lit up. The face of a smiling woman and a grinning dog looked back at him with bulbed eyes. Give a toot, the caption read. Choose Osborne's horns for all your horn needs, and choose them today. Don't wait. We're the Osborns, and we were born to horn. Give a toot. Even though he was working for the competition, Bront knew a top shelf ad when he saw it. And this copy was filed so high on the shelf you needed an intern standing on a couple of swivel chairs just to reach it. Hell, if I hadn't just replaced my horn, I might even consider buying one. Rockefeller mused to himself once again out loud. He watched Jimmy pull up to the curb and then stood silently as the young, sad sack office administrator tried in vain to parallel park between two dumpsters. Bront chuckled to himself. <laughs> Jimmy was trying his best, and he had to admit he had his uses, mostly as eye candy at the front desk. Jimmy worked nights at a sweet shop and brought in gumballs, decorated his eyes to leave at a bowl at reception. But he had a lot to learn if he ever wanted to become an erotic detective one day, which, although Jimmy had never mentioned being interested in becoming an erotic detective, is what Bront assumed was why he was here. He certainly wasn't here for the pay, which Bront had told him up front was a sales commission basis. And since Jimmy technically never made any sales since it was Bront's business, staffing overhead had remained low. Outside, the city was alive with wind and the chimes that depended on it for their voices to be heard. This summer, the city had decided that rather than complete any civic improvements in the area of town, they would add hundreds and hundreds of wind chimes in a new strategy for neighborhood beautification. It had worked enough to bring in social media influencers, but the overwhelming noise from the chimes made it so that they couldn't hear the muggers approach them from behind to steal their posting phones. City administration still considered it a win, as very few social media posts were made after the thefts, and thus online buzz was good. Hashtag wind chimes, hashtag chime in, had reached levels of engagement the municipal communications team had only dreamt of previously. Over 300 shares and 75 likes. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller, I think there's something wrong with the power steering, Jimmy huffed, handing over the keys. Uh, I could barely turn the wheel. That's because it's a man's car, Jimmy, Bront explained. I don't trust machines, and so I cut the fluid lines to give me that wheel control back. Plus, it's one hell of a workout. Look at these forearms, he shouted, rolling up his sleeves as far as possible on his massive forearms, which, due to how massive his forearms were, wasn't far. But Jimmy got the idea. Jimmy, <laughs> just a piece of friendly advice from the man who signs your paychecks, Bront said, gently tumbling into the California manatee skin bucket seats of his detective class Ford Focus. If you ever say anything bad about my car again, I'll be filling you up with power-fearing fluid. <laughs> Jimmy looked confused, and Bront rolled up his windows quick so his enjoyment of the moment's witty remark wouldn't be spoiled by Jimmy's stuttering and furrowed brow. He loudly revved his engine until Jimmy went back into the building. Looks like I'm off on a drive, Bront said. Next stop, Little Germany Town, and then time to crack the case. This might just be my sexiest adventure yet. Not so fast, detective, a gravelly voice said in the back seat. You might say that this might just be your deadliest adventure yet. Instead... Detective! The sound of a gun's click and trigger cock rang out behind Rockefeller's head, which was feeling the cold butt of a hard metal gun pressed into it. End of chapter two.